Good day, everybody. This is Clay from the Fish Nerds. Quick disclaimer, this week's show was recorded partially in Australia at 6 a.m. by Luke Chamings from Shamos Lures. Luke was busy making tea and getting his kids ready for school while I was working on the sound on my end, and we didn't get a sound quite right. But he's worth the time. The fish in the news from Australia is totally great. After Luke is done, we've got Speak Up for Blue with Andrew Lewin and all the fly fishing questions you've ever wanted answered get answered in this week's show. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast. <laughs> I'm Luke Chamming, Sister Humble Lure Maker from Chamo's Lures Down Under. Chief Executive Chamo's Lures. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, it's been a long time. It has been too long. Months. No, that's good. I always look forward to my fish nerd gig. <laughs> Get your nerd out today while you can. Now, you're in Australia. And for those who don't know, Luke, you are from Chamo's Lures. That's your lure company. You make these great craft uh, handmade lures. And that's how I found you originally. I saw your stuff on Facebook and went, my God, these are beautiful. And we became best friends so that I can, yeah. so I can get some lures. That's why we're friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. lures have probably been a little light on. But uh, <laughs> but high on the friendship, know, which is nice. It's been a fantastic trip. Yeah. So, so what's going on? Well, I've got a little bit of fishing news for well, you today. So we're going to start. We're going to start with fish in the news. Yeah, beep beep beep, fish in the news. Here I love it. All right, let's go. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. All right, I'm just going to read it off of the um, Google thing. Right, Toxic. Go. Coral spores suspected of poisoning seven people south of Adelaide. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not so much for them, though, it seems. Here we go. A family of seven living just south of Adelaide is in hospital because of suspected poisoning from spores released by coal from a household aquarium. From a household aquarium? Yeah. It was scrubbed with a cleaning brush. They give it a clean. Ambulance crews were called to the house on Sunday parade at Aldinga Beach about 2.30 in the morning when the, pre- uh, presidents, when the residents fell ill. God help us who it was a president. <laughs> they were taken to Flinders Medical Centre, which is a hospital down that way, and remain in a stable condition. Dean contamination crews have worked at the home throughout the day. Country fire service and police were then called to the scene, which has been cordoned off. So they took it pretty serious. Wait, so they cleaned out their home aquarium. Yep. Then they got sick. They called the and, emergency uh, crews in. Yeah. And, oh, it, so it, I'm imagining, remember, you ever seen, see the movie E.T.? Uh, yes. So remember when they, when they buttoned the entire house up and had to evacuate everybody? That's what I'm imagining. Like, yeah. This huge like, well, hazmat crew. Exactly what happens. The CFS said it traced the problem to the aquarium because of what the family members had said that symptoms were, and uh, mainly playing breathing problems. Uh, la, 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 la. Oh, the CFS regional officer Peter Phillips said those two, we, CFS and the uh, police, worked it out. 
spores from the coral, Fest Regional Officer. Oh, that's what he said. It would appear that in trying to clean the coral, they've taken it out of the aquarium and scrubbed it with a brush. That has liberated Oh, my God. Spores. So they actually cleaned the it coral was- itself. They took the coral out and washed the coral. Yeah, um, it's yeah with a brush. So they didn't read any books. No, no. no. <laughs> but a, uh, a coral expert has been consulted. Hazmat mm-hmm. teams are on site. Mister Phillips said, "Family fell ill three to four hours after cleaning what he called readily available coral." Hmm. Three hazardous materials removal teams are on site, wearing protective suits and breathing apparatus each working in 20-minute shifts. So, like you said, it was very ET-like. Wow. Marine ecologist Ivan, now bear with me, Nagler Kirken, yes, that's a beauty, said coal products sold in aquarium shops could contain toxins which could be life-threatening. Never knew this myself. When people start cleaning their aquaria and damaging these flower corals, that's when the toxins are released. For example, if people have cut have a cut in their hand, or if there was one case of somebody cleaning their tank with boiling water and the toxins entered the water vapor, then the effects would be really harmful. So, it, you know, cleaning out the aquarium isn't quite as safe as it once seemed. You know, I, I'm too lazy to be a saltwater aquarist, uh, and now now I'm too scared. Yeah, <laughs> I'm scared and lazy. <laughs> I think salt water one would I'm not sure if it's salt or fresh water. I dare say it's a salt uh, it is coral. A green yeah. Coral, but yeah. um a freshwater coral? Uh, I I won't say no. Uh because I, I bet there is and I'm I'm always I seem to be wrong a lot lately. Um so <laughs> I I'm I'm betting there probably is, but I don't know. So yeah, we'll, that... we'll say that it was marine, but yeah. yeah, I bet you they got a bit of a shock. They thought they're doing the right thing, and then um, yeah, I, I never realised it could be so toxic. Uh, you know, if my hobby uh, made my kids really sick, my wife would not support it. I'm uh, <laughs> just saying, <laughs> it would not be a good hobby. Uh, so, are they still in the? Did they follow up? Are they are they okay now? Oh, are they, they still aquarium keepers? They were released later that day or the day after, after observation, and they turned out that they obviously survived and they were fine. But um, they were um, definitely, uh, yeah, put the wind up them to say and, um, yeah, end up in hospital after cleaning your aquarium. I'm never cleaning mine again. Uh, no, and, and now you're an aquaculturist now, aren't you? Didn't you go to yeah, school and get a big shiny degree and a ribbon and a sash and all that stuff, the crown? Yeah, yeah, and then um, paraded up the main street and everything. No, no, it was, uh, I felt like the mayor. No, <laughs> no, it was um, a long haul, but I finally got through my certificate through in aquaculture. So um, I'm no Dr. Erica, but... Um, getting there you're getting there and and yeah. that, so so you should know a little bit about this kind of stuff what kind of uh, aquaculture did you study what were you what were you working towards well mainly i do freshwater natives australian natives and we do a bit of aquaculture as in um, growing vegetable mixed vegetables for a few of the hotels in gaula so um they take like a mixed lettuce that you see in your bay marie's and your salads like that and um, yeah, we, we've got lucky enough to have a couple of pubs online that buy our product, good, and we have a few um, 
fishing clubs that hang around and grab some fish off us from time to time. But um, as far as the reese, like growing fish out to restock, there's a lot, a lot of legislation and licences and um, stuff needed. So we're struggling to all the boxes in that. So, um, yeah, basically we keep the fish. We, we bum a few off to a couple of fishing clubs as long as they're only putting them in dams or water that's not connected to natural waterways. Um, yeah, it's fine. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very enjoyable and uh, quite lucrative little thing to get into if you can. And now is this what you're doing for work now or is this a part-time no, thing? No, no. New job. I'm a. I'm still playing with sawdust, but I'm a machinist now. I um spend all day feeding timber into the machines, and which is it sounds boring, but it's actually quite exciting at times. Get to, uh, new sort of projects to work on, and the hours are long. Working for myself for 25 years is a bit of a shock to the system to have to be somewhere at a certain time and not allowed to leave to a certain time and. But, uh, yeah, it's getting in the way of my Fish Nerd podcast and lure <laughs> in general. Yeah, so, uh, it does change things for sure. Uh, do you have any more news for us? Yes, I certainly do. Well, this, let's one, go. this one's a little bit more Australian every way. Work out what I mean. Sure. Man bit by a shark going to lasso it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, read that title again. Man bit by a shark. Oh, who hasn't tried that? Yes, well, God. and you're ready? For, okay, Josh <laughs> Ferret Hill, 29, attempted to rope the nine-foot predator in shark-infested waters off North Queensland. A foolhardy Aussie has told of the moment a shark bit a chunk out of his leg after he tried to lasso it like a cowboy. Oh, my God. Josh <laughs> Ferret. You have ferrets over there? We sure do, yeah. Yeah, like a weasel. So we could either say Josh Weasel Neal or Josh Ferret Neal, and you'd be probably pretty close. Absolutely. 29. Tented the rope a nine-foot predator in shark-infested waters near his home in North Queensland. So a a nine-foot shark. Yeah. uh, So that three meters. I'm translating to Australian for you. And and what do you think that weighs, a nine-foot shark? Oh, geez, it has to be 100 pounds. Uh, they're probably 150, 200 pounds or something. It's a, it was a big shark. I seen it, and he, um, it was hooked on to line, so they'd caught it, mm-hmm. brought it to the side of the boat, and he decided instead of just pulling its head up out of the water and putting a rope around it like they do or around its tail, he um, decided to jump in with it, <laughs> physically popped the lasso around the shark. Of course, it's... <laughs> doubled around on itself and just absolutely give it to him. Sure. Well, so Which, we're not talking about the smartest person. Amusing for the people watching. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I presume his friends were the same kind of person he was. Uh, oh, and they probably cool. thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. They were, they're, they're sort of, what's the word you have over Googans? Go, uh, go. <laughs> yeah, we got them Googans. <laughs> At first, dreadlocked. Josh is seen dangling off the side of his boat, trying to grab the predator by the tail. As he tries to lash a rope around the shark, it strikes back. Well, good on the shark. <laughs> yes, exactly. And generally, the world consensus was, you're an idiot, because mm-hmm. it went viral. 
Blonde Josh, I mean, that makes a difference, he was blonde, just wanted to land the nine-foot sharks. Armed with a rope, he dived into the shark, rock-infested waters in remote, far north. Tried to wrestle it to the boat and tail rope it. <laughs> After a battle of 15 seconds, I found myself locked in the shark's jaws as it trashed a chunk off of my right thigh. <sighs> now, I've seen the wound. Mm-hmm. A little... Mm, a little over the top. It was a reasonable bite, but didn't pull any. When you say chunk, you expect a big mouthful to be gone, but it wasn't quite that bad. You ready for this? Bit? I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Here we go. This is some of Josh's better work. I was lucky not to lose my sea, my sea cucumber instead. <laughs> he's, I think he's meaning his manhood. I think that's exactly <laughs> what he means. I, believe me, he lost his manhood. That's okay. <laughs> The sea cucumber. Yeah. Anyway, we all call it that. <laughs> we call it. A, we call it. I call mine a land gherkin, but that's me. <laughs> I just call mine John. Anyway, <laughs> it was a quick and regrettable decision that I, that I realised was a stupid move. However, the plan was to release the shark without having to gaff or kill the large shark by tail roping it. Thanks, staff at Weeper Hospital. They were very, very helpful. Now, Weeper is very remote, um, up in the Gulf of Carpentaria, mm-hmm. and it's, um, yeah, very hot, and there is millions of bull sharks and um, croco- saltwater crocodiles up there. So, yeah, he's a goose for jumping in. God. Dark was later pictured hanging up on the boat, apparently dead after being caught. Oh. Now, this is where it went, arrived. He was... I'm going to help it, save it, release it, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next photo is of it dead hanging up by this rope. General condemnation was uh, given. Josh is also shown in photographs with a large bite in his right thigh and blood all over his leg. In another snap, he's bandaged on the boat while holding the shark in the air. So, um, yeah, so after all that, the poor shark passed on the he became famous for 15 seconds or so. That's insane. A bozo. Yeah. Now, did he eat the shark? What kind of shark was it? Uh, what I could see, it looked like a thresher shark or mm-hmm. something similar, like it had the big, long tail. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really matter what sharks it is up there. They're all pretty aggro. <laughs> uh, yeah. You jump in, with, even if they're hooked up by you know, line and net or anything, they'll still have a chew. They will still have a go. They even bite out of the water, actually. Yeah. Silly enough to put anything in front of their nose and they're on the they have a snap at it. Oh, there's countless YouTube videos of people holding sharks and getting bit by them. It's it's a scary thing. Have you ever been around a large shark? A large yes, shark? yes. I've caught a few. I've caught a couple of 200-pounders, I suppose, and bull sharks. One time I waded out in um, Dundee Beach, Darwin, and uh, – a little naive, I waded out up to uh, probably my waist, middle of the night, passed out. And I was in the water about, I don't know, 30 seconds, I suppose. The next minute, the old rod started to give a bit of a tug, and next minute, it's off, running, and I'm, he's got something pretty big on here. And uh, I started back door, um, got the shark in, and I grabbed him by his tail in the shallows, and he turned around on himself and nearly bit me back of the ankle. Jeez. Once again, being up in Darwin and there's not, you know, it's way up in the tropics, 
no one of them. You, you can quite easily see how the, you know these mistakes and silly errors of judgment happen. And I thought later on, I thought, what an idiot I am! I'm standing <laughs> out there, waist deep, with a you know six foot bull shark, which has more testosterone than a bull elephant. The fact they have the highest testosterone level of any animal on earth, they reckon. Really? And uh, this thing is full on trying to attack me in the shallows. But I was thinking, oh, all this commotion, and we would have brought a croc or another shark over, and I would have been in a lot of trouble. So. Yeah, I do not recommend wading out in the uh, tropical waters of Australia fishing at all. God, Australia not, is not so scary. How, how do people live past 30 in Australia? It's such a scary country. Well, they usually live, if they live up in the tropics, by about 30, they've had a, they've had a gut. They'll come back down in the south end of Australia where it's a little safer. I'll say a little <laughs> bit safer. We only have the deadliest snake in the world down here and the biggest sharks and uh, blue ring octopuses too. There was a photo the other day of this complete goose standing there with a blue ringed octopus in the palm of his hand, so pointy end down, mm-hmm. and when they get angry, their rings fire up. Like they get blue rings on them, a real iridescent blue ring, and he's standing there on Facebook with this octopus in the palm of his hand with it it's lit up like a christmas tree aggro as and he's put on there what is this because everyone's answer was death <laughs> hospital trip you're an idiot yeah you know and uh, they are a deadly deadly little animal so once again if you're ever down this way and you see a lot of people used to they live in the locker old bottles and cans and empty shells, so they're always being found by beach combers and stuff, you know, picking up little odds and sods off the beach. So sure. you have to be very, very mindful of what you're picking up, what's living inside of it, because these things, if they bite you, you are cat. But, wow, it sounds terrible. <laughs> oh, they are. They're horrible. They're gorgeous. Yeah, well, think, things, are, are things that are really, cute are dangerous. That's what I know for sure. They are. They are truly death on eight legs. They really are. Oh, that's cool. Arms. They're arms. Arms, right. Okay. Arms. I'm, I'm learning. So I'm sharing what I know. <laughs> not, not, ten, not tentacles, not legs, arms. Yeah. <laughs> so any, any, any parting thoughts, any last pieces of news, Luke? I know you've got to get out of here. Yeah, I'll have to go to work. My parting thought is I hate work. No, um, <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just uh, enjoying watching uh, the fish nerds growing still, lovely nation. It's always good to have a bit of a look and see what's going on. And um, Dr. Erica's song was a beauty the other day. Really enjoyed that. That's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, loving, loving your work as normal, old mate. Oh, hey, thanks, Luke, and we do we too, and uh, we're not seeing nearly enough pictures of your uh, your lure work up on our Facebook page, so share, oh, well, I, I, share I some. Like, I don't like to self-promote we like too it. much. Yeah. I mean, it's Fish Nerd Nation is about fish nerds. It's not just about advertising, So, um, no. but I'll whack a, whack a few up. Oh, I like putting the, my uh, middle daughter, Reese's, become quite the fisher person of late, and, um, oh, that was her <laughs> saying thank you in the background. <laughs> Yeah, um, he is absolutely smashing them at the moment. Just got that that depth touch. Yeah, how old is she? 
Uh, she's a, nearly 11 now. Yeah, my 10-year-old daughter can catch a fish anywhere and outfish me Which, every time. Yeah, Reese is a bit the same. I, I took her out with her uncle the other day and she smashed him and by the end of it he was getting getting snots up with a big time. Ah. <laughs> that ego thing again. All right. Hey, Luke, I'm going to let you go. Have a great day uh, at work. And, I, of course, I will uh, put links up and photos of your, your stuff on fishners.com. And always great to chat with you, Luke. Let's uh, spend some more time next time and do a whole show together, okay? That would be fantastic. I love your work, Clay, and a big hello to the Fish Nerd Nation out there. All right. Uh, Talk to you all again very soon. All right. Thanks, Luke. Thank you, Clay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Okay. Well, so Luke had to leave because Australia is far away. And so we thank him for, for being part of the show. And of course, you can uh, check out uh, Chamo's Lures on Facebook, space, best place to find him. And he's very great. Uh, also, a big thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. For those who don't know, our show is crowdfunded by our listeners. So listeners are our sponsors. We're asking anyone who can afford $4 a month to head over to patreon.com forward slash fish nerds and sign up to give us $1 per episode. That's a super good deal for an hour of entertainment a week. And we usually give them a little more than an hour. Big thanks to our newest donor, Andrew Campbell. Uh, we love that you're part of the community. Your, uh, your little bit of money doesn't feel like much to you, but to us, it's a lot. And the more people who give us just the $4 a month level, the better. Um, the idea is sustainability. Um, $4 doesn't hurt anybody, but when you add it up over dozens or hundreds, hopefully, of listeners, uh, it, it could really make a difference in the show. Special thanks to our business donor, Josh Lopes at lopestax.com. If you donate $25 per episode, uh, we will mention your business here at the Fish Nerds Podcast. Um, and we, we do need more support. So head over to patreon.com forward slash fish nerds for more information. If enough listeners do this, I can stop trying to sell advertising on the show and just make the show that you want because you'll own the whole show. Okay, this week, speak up for the effin' blue segment. Andrew Lewin is going to dive into uh, conservation talk today. Uh, Andrew is host of Speak Up for the Blue podcast, and we like this guy, and we like his show. Hey, everybody. Andrew Lewin here, host of this segment of the Speak Up for effin' blue here on the Fishner's podcast. Clay, thank you very much for allowing me to come back and talk about some motion conservation on this Fishner's uh, podcast. I'm not sure if you guys know, I'm also host of the Speak Up for Blue podcast, and I've been uh, repping you guys, uh, the, the f- not only the podcast, Fish Nerds podcast, but the people that are in the Fish Nerds group. I'm not sure if you guys have joined the group before or if you're part of the group, uh, but I highly suggest you join the Fish Nerds podcast group uh, because um, I get, I, I'm not, a, I have to admit, I'm not someone who goes out fishing. Um, not because I don't like it, just I don't really have a lot of time to go. Um, but I love looking at the conversations in there. I love looking at the pictures and how dedicated you guys are. And I love just the outdoors where you guys are and where you guys show where you are and, and where you're fishing and stuff. And I think it's great. I also love the fact that you guys are asking some fantastic questions on fisheries management, ocean conservation, and all that kind of jazz. That uh, makes me really excited. So uh, last segment when I was on, uh, I asked you guys if you have any questions to ask. Um, and I was not, uh, I, I was, I was not surprised to get that said question. 
Um, but I was really happy to see it. I got a question this week um, on uh, in the in the group about um, you know what uh, you guys are you know what about uh, actually seals. Really, it was really about seals, and um, and I was happy to answer it. So I'm gonna look it up here. I'm just looking up. There's there's so many different like so a lot of cool pictures and and stuff in this group. But I'm looking for the question that was asked about seal. Here it is. So, uh, Ryan Dubay, I hope I pronounced that uh, properly, Ryan Dubay, D-U-B-A-Y, in the group asks, he goes, hey, question for Andrew. And I'm going to read it out to you because I think it was really thought out well. Every year around this time, we start seeing these photos of of the exploding seal population on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It is a very, very hot topic every spring. The talk about how much fish these seals eat how there was once a bounty on seal noses in Massachusetts, and how they are affecting fish stock. Many folks are calling for all sorts of things. Sterilization program, Native Americans to hunt them, all sorts of stuff. However, it's just all noise. I have never heard someone who might actually know what they are talking about speak on it aside from how many more sharks we are getting from the expansion of the seal population. So I'm wondering, do these seals obviously eat a lot a lot, but are they are they but are they a threat to our bait fish population, cod population, striped bass? I've heard all of this, but don't know what to believe. Uh, so he he passed me over to a Facebook story. I read it a little bit. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of interesting, and it's read uh, seal haters uh, in parenthesis fishermen suggest taking up a hobby like scrapbooking or geocaching. Um, this is, I guess, it's it's directed towards fishermen uh, or seal haters, quote-unquote. Uh, maybe needlepoint, vegan cooking, I don't know. Anything that doesn't involve fishing, because I think the seals have the upper hand this year. Why I didn't count noses, the load of seals in seal triangle from the Benito Bar to Muscad- Muscaget, I guess, to the wreck of the Creosis is, a ma- is massive this year. They covered every sandbar point and shoal the other day. And there's a picture, there's about four or five pictures of these, of these seals and they're, they are everywhere. I mean, they're just, uh, they're on every bank. They're hauled out, um, on these different islands. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite a sight. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, so I did some research. So now I'm going to tell you, I don't know a lot about the, um, the population in Cape Cod, the gray seal population. However, I do know a little bit about the uh, gray seal population in Canada because we're having the same issue. Uh, It's a little different in the history, but it's kind of similar. And it's different in the way it's managed. In the 19, for, for the research that I did off this question, in the 1960s, the gray seal population in Massachusetts was decimated by hunting mostly. Um, Seal pelts, uh, I guess noses, um, and and seal oil was very popular uh, in its heyday. And a lot of people were looking for it, so there was a big hunt for it to control the population maybe, as well uh, as to profit from it. The population was decimated, and it didn't look like it was going to recover very well. In comes in the States the Marine Mammal Protection Act. It was an act that basically prohibits anything to do with marine mammals. That includes seals, cetaceans, so whales, um, includes polar bears, walruses, all that kind of stuff. When the Marine Mammal Protection Act was instilled uh, in the 60s and 70s, I believe, 
There was also a Magnuson-Stevenson Act, which is their, your Fisheries Act, I guess. Um, I don't know too much about the act, but I know it's done a lot of good as a regulatory tool. I did a podcast a couple of weeks or a year ago with Dr. Chris Lowe from the University of California, Long Beach, who has, he's a shark researcher. He attested the, on the West Coast, he attested the increase of great white sharks to the increase of seal, sea lion populations, which was uh, due to the increase of fish because of the Magnuson-Stevenson Act. And then the sea lions were increased because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. The food source increased, so great white sharks increased as well, an endangered species. All conservation wins. I'm going to say that right now. From a conservation standpoint, the increase and the recovery of those species are all conservation wins. The government set out to recover those populations, and they are recovering. They're not perfect, but they are recovering. Let's go to the East Coast now. Back in the, before the 1960s, the decimation, you were looking at about 60,000 gray seals. That was, about, that was about the population, pretty high. It went down to like within the single thousands. With the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the recovery of those species, nowadays, you fast forward to today, the estimation is at about, originally was at about 20,000, but that's when they did an aerial survey where they just counted the seals that were hauled out on those islands, where the picture was shared in the, in the Fishner's podcast group. What that didn't account for with all of these seals in the water. So there were more estimations done, more models done, and then now they estimate about thirty to 50,000 uh, individuals from this population of gray seals. So that's a pretty big population, but again, a conservation win. It's a huge conservation win from going down to like the single thousands and then back up to, you know, 30 to 50,000 individuals. Conservation win. Now let's go back into history again. When the population, seal population was huge, the cod population was also huge. Back in the 1800s, late 1800s, when uh, Canadians and, um, and Americans were fishing, it was said that you could put a bucket in the water on the east, on the Atlantic coast, and you can just pop it up and you can get more fish. It was very easy to catch cod, in other words. So the cod were plentiful, the seals were plentiful. Now, I'm sure both of them fluctuated back and forth, right? Uh, you know, as the, as the seal population increased to a point, uh, I'm assuming that the food resources wasn't always there, weren't always there, right? So that those two populations probably, if they were tightly linked, would probably fluctuate, you know, with a little bit of a lag on each one. So as the cod population increased, the seal population increased because there was more food availability, if that's what they fed on, and if that was their primary diet. And then they would, you know, as there's got to a certain point where the seal population was eating too many fish, the cod population fell a little bit, maybe even the bass population fell a little bit, and then the seal population would fall just a little after that because of lack of food. But because there were so many cod, I'm assuming, and there's no data to really um, confirm this, but I'm assuming that you were still can fish and it wouldn't affect the cod population because the cod population was really high. Fast forward to today, or even the 90s, when the moratorium in Canada was put on the cod population on fishing because it was decimated. And it's still decimated to this point considering historical numbers. Same thing happened in the US. We overfished. Two countries overfished these populations. And there were other countries involved as well coming over and, and fishing cod because it was such a, uh, uh, you know, an important commercial fisheries, commercial fish species and fishery. So, you know, that was a, that was a big deal. You know, it, so now the, the seal population is protected and it's going up, but the, the cod population is not. And there's a big worry uh, in Massachusetts that 
the seal population is stopping the recovery of the cod population. In addition, there's reports, anecdotal reports, that say, uh, you know, seals are taking fish right off, right off the hooks of fishermen. Um, they're affecting the bait fish population um, and so forth. Now, I tried to do some research on it to look at some scientific papers to see um, if if those concerns were addressed in the scientific literature. This has only been a couple of days. I haven't been able to find anything. Doesn't mean it's not out there. Um, but from what I've seen, there's not a lot of information on it because this recovery is really just being known or really being observed or really being addressed. Uh, and concerns are being brought up. So I'm sure there's going to be some some sort of study soon. Um, there is a researcher that I'm actually trying to interview. Um, I'm not going to say the person's name right now because I don't want to uh, bring them into the mix right away. Um, but I, once I find out some more information, I'll update you guys on that. The idea is what we're trying to find out. What I'm trying to find out is the seal population affecting fish populations? Is it affecting the cod recovery? Is it affecting the bait fish recovery or bait fish population? Is it, rec- is it affecting striped bass population? I don't know at this point. What I can do is go up to Canada and look at the research that's been done there. In the mid 2000s, there was a um, a government, a Fisheries Notions Canada, a federal government uh, document that was issued uh, after a study was done to address the question: in, Are gray seals affecting the seal population? Now you got to remember, in Canada, there is an annual hunt, but there are hundreds of thousands of gray seals and harbor seals, I believe, too. Um. The hunt is very controversial. Not a lot of people like us for it. Uh, PETA hates us for it, I'm pretty sure. Um, We've had a beetle who doesn't like us because of it. And the musician, the beetle, um, Paul McCartney. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of people don't like the hunt. Uh, Very bad press. The European Union has banned any kind of Canadian pelts um, from, from being imported there. You know, it's affected the industry. It's highly subsidized. Um, there's a lot of, it's a big political issue, an environmental issue. But the, so the Canadian government is very heavily invested into finding out, you know, should we be doing calling? Should we not? Is it managed properly? And the big question from the fishing community is, you know, they're eating all our cod. The cod's not recovering. It must be the seals. So there was a study done and looking at the um, gut contents of, of dead seals and looking at what, what they're eating. What they found was that only 21% of their diet is made of cod. Only 21%. That's not a lot. The other, the other uh, percentage, the other uh, proportion was made up between redfish and sand lions. Those are the big fish species that were found, or the more popular species that were found, other than, than cod. However, so you think, oh, only 20%, you know, is affecting, you know, that's not really, that shouldn't really affect the recovery of a population. It's only 20%. But think about it, 21% of the diet, but there's hundreds of thousands of animals. That can add up. Um, it, was, it was concluded in the document, the Fisheries and Ocean document, that they were affecting the population, even though it's only 20% of their diet, because the population was so low. So remember when I talked about history, where, you know, when cod was plentiful, both the seal population was in good health, as well as the um, fisheries for it. So the human population was doing well. They were getting a lot of money and food off of it. But now that the population has dwindled and next to nothing, it's having trouble recovering. So that becomes a problem. So 
Um, now it now it's more of a social issue. So we have a conservation win in terms of the seal population recovering. However, the cod population is not recovering. I haven't found any information on the striped bass, so I apologize for those of you who wanted that. However, I'm trying to get that information, and I'll update you once I do. But now we're looking at really a socioeconomic issue, you know, because you're looking at the gray seal population is going to eat, right? And as it grows, it's going to eat more. Whether that's cod, striped bass, or any other fish, we don't know. And more studies are going to be needed if they haven't been done already in this area. The fact that there are a lot of seals coming around, um, the increased seals, that means there's more great white sharks predation and more great white sharks in general coming to Cape Cod. I'm sorry, that's a good thing. Ecologically. That stabilizes the food web. The great white sharks, even even seals are, are an apex predator that can control and maintain the stability of the food web and habitats. It's a good thing. Obviously, for, again, socioeconomic, for tourism, the fear of having great white sharks near beaches is not a, is, is very high um, for a lot of people, and it could affect tourism. However, there are so many more studies now, and there are so many tagged animals, uh, great white sharks, that you will be able to track a lot of them where they are. And that's a good thing for, war- for a warning system. Obviously not ideal, but... I mean, it's an, it's, a, it's an ocean world. It's made for sharks and fish and seals. We negatively affect it more than they negatively affect it, right? But when it comes down to, um, you know, fishing communities and making a living and supporting families that have been supported for generations and generations, I think it becomes a very, a very big socioeconomic issue. And that's the tough part. But that's where it also becomes a marine planning issue. And I'll go into that probably the next episode because marine planning is really just the effective usage of the ocean to satisfy different ocean users. And one of those ocean users is the environment itself. So there's a, there's a lot of issues when it comes down to socioeconomic issues, you have to bring everybody to the table, all these ocean users to the table and find out what the big thing is. You need to get more information on the, on the ocean populations, seals, especially the increase. What are they eating? How much of it are they eating? Is it really affecting the recovery of the population? You need to answer those questions. And you can based on what DFO did. You know, fisheries and oceans did up in Canada. Um, and there might be some similarities within those populations as well in terms of what they're eating, but it's going to depend on the habitat. You also have to remember that cod, the recovery of cod in the Northeast United States is being affected by increasing ocean temperatures. There was a study done a while ago that we covered on Speak Up for Blue, uh, where the Newfoundland population of cod is recovering faster than the main population in cod and, and Northeastern population of cod or Northeast and U.S. population of cod because of increased temperatures in the Northeast U.S. Uh, and water temperatures. So that's also affecting it. So you have this cumulative impacts. And I'm sure there's more impacts as well, cumulative impacts that can affect what's happening. Um, obviously, an increase in population of seals could, uh, could affect it. I, I don't think it's out of context, but there's no evidence to support that yet. Um, and when I find it, or if I find it, or if I find that it's not there, I will let you guys know. But that's essentially the gist of it. Um, I do still think that the fact that sales have rebounded is a conservation win, um, and that this becomes a social economic issue uh, that needs to be addressed uh, to make sure that ocean users, such as fishing communities, are happy and that they can still support their families. I do think going back to a smaller scale fishery where you take the corporations out of it and the big uh, plants out of it, but you allow 
fishing families to continue fishing on a smaller basis, but they can still make more money. I think it's just a matter of are are citizens willing to uh, deal with less fish? Maybe pay a little bit more, but less fish, but it's more sustainable. That might be out of the realm, I don't know, of of sort of the managers and the lobbyists and, and the fishing community. I don't know. I'm not tied into that. But you guys tell me. Go in the Facebook group, tell me. Um, I'll read some of some of the stuff that's been that's been said in in the Facebook group when I before I answered. Um, it was like I said, it's well thought out. It was it was really cool to hear some of the people. You know, some of them were like, "Oh, gross!" You know, very similar to dogfish population, how that was getting out of out of hand, it's out of control, and consuming every resources that they can get their mouths on. Now, that's not necessarily true. You know, they do feed, but you know, you got to remember that once they feed on fish. Their pop, the seal population will be avail- will regulate itself based on the availability of food. You got to remember, Ocean Systems has been doing this for millions of years, so that that helps. Ryan replied to that. He said, "I can see a viable solution uh, to that. At least that we can catch and kill and eat dogfish. We aren't allowed to do any of that with seals." And it goes on about the Marine Mammal Protection Act. I responded, um, and uh, Ryan responded to me. I definitely see that side of basically what I said. I just wonder at what point do we begin to manage the population? Is that even possible? Wildlife management has been extremely successful in the United States uh, for deer, wild turkey, and waterfowl populations. Definitely help from uh, from you Canadian and on waterfowl. Um, we have realized mistakes we have made uh, with some of it, like snow geese, and desperately trying uh, to manage that population. I understand that more than sea- than the seals, I have many friends on the wildlife management side, none on the marine wildlife management side. So that's what he was trying to get information on. Uh, and it's, you know, it's difficult when we try and manage a population to keep it, you know, to keep it under a certain amount of numbers. It's very difficult to do that because we're playing with fire here. We're playing with stuff that we don't really understand. Um, the populations, animal populations are, especially in the marine realm, uh, a lot of them we have some you know, indication of it, but a lot of them, like you think like great white sharks and sharks, we would know a lot about, but we don't. And we're really just dis- determining it based on the technology that's available in terms of tracking great whites, tiger sharks, hammerhead sharks, leopard sharks, all these different types of sharks to understand where they go, what their home ranges are and, and so forth. Um, it's very difficult uh, with that. You know, it's very difficult to to understand everything that's at play because there's a lot of things at play in the ocean and a lot of them we don't understand, uh, still don't understand because we can't see all the time, we can't go very deep and, and, and so forth uh, as often. So, it's very difficult to manage these populations when we get into that because we're playing with fire here. Um, so, it's almost like, do you let nature just take run its course and we adapt? Or why does nature have to adapt to us? And, and there's both sides of the argument. We're human species. We're the we're the dominant species uh, intellectually, um, but we've made some really stupid mistakes. Um, but that's just the way it goes, right? So it's it's a matter of trying to understand that. Do we manage it? I don't know. Do I think we should? No. I think we should adapt to other people. That's sort of just sort of what I think anyway. Um, but anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Go in the Fish Nerds Facebook group. Let me know again, Clay. I'm very sorry for this being so long. Um, but I hope you guys get a lot out of this. I'd love to in, uh, increase the dialogue. Uh, I don't, by the way, just to let you know, if you're in there and you're making comments, I don't judge anybody based on their thoughts. I, I open, I want an open dialogue. I'd love to answer questions and and post questions to you guys. I'm not always right. Um, you guys are out in, in the ocean more than I am. 
uh, and I'm jealous of you for that. Um, but that's sort of how I see it. Um, so I'd love to know uh, your opinions on that and um, and open up a dialogue and have some have some fun with it. So thank you very much, Clay. Again, really sorry for it being so long, but I thought this is, this takes a while to to talk and explain the history and 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 now the present day. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know and. Here is back to Clay with the rest of your Fish News podcast. Talk to you there and happy conservation. All right, big thanks, Andrew. That was that was a long segment, but man, we, did we learn more about seals than we ever wanted to know. Speaking of seals, uh, this entire week, now the show is out, I am at the Virginia Aquarium and Marine Science Center at Virginia Beach, uh, and I am going to be hanging out with biologists and scientists and chefs and all kinds of cool people all week creating some really, really great content. Uh, and and they, have a, a, they, have, they have seals there, and I'm going to ask them some of the same questions that Andrew was asking on his show. So we'll follow up. But if you're in the Virginia Beach area on May 25th, you should come to the Sensible Seafood Festival, Sensible Seafood Festival at the Virginia Aquarium Marine Science Center. Uh, it's their big fundraiser of the year. I get to judge it, which means I get to eat tons of delicious, sustainable seafood, which is critical. So come on down, check this out. Now, finally, this is a, this is big. Last week we asked we asked you guys, the listeners, to give a call to the Fish Nerds Hotline at six zero seven three seven eight fish and give us your fly fishing advice. Um, this was part of our John Gearick, a fly rod of your own giveaway, and you did not disappoint. Uh, also, but any anytime you have feedback or you want to be part of the show, you can call the hotline, 607-378-FISH, and leave us a voicemail. But here are, here are the... Um, here are the phone calls we got, and we got a lot of them. And as you're listening, you know, make some notes. Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you won't. Uh, and if you have any feedback, join our Facebook group and be part of the conversation. We have a, a, fi- a, a group on Facebook called Fish Nerds Podcast, which is a really great fishing community. And if you're not part of it already, you should be. There's about 500 people there now, and we talk everything from fishy conservation through fishing cooking techniques, and sometimes we just make fun of each other and have a great time. Uh, So check that out. Hey, fish nerds. This is Brian from Iowa. Um, Do I have any fly fishing advice? Uh, Don't go fishing with your fly open, (laughs) especially if there's Paku around. There you go. Thanks. Bye. Hello, fish nerds. Captain Sean here. My advice for fly fishing. Just don't do it. And if you are going to do it, the best way to fly fish is with a live worm. Hello, fish nerds. This is Rich Yvonne calling from Twin Maple Outdoors up here in Bradford, Maine. And the fly fishing season has kicked off here in northern Maine with receding waters, cleaner waters, and catching some beautiful salmon and trout. So I was asked what would I recommend to all the fly fishing people out there in the audience. Um, one of a recommendation. So um, I guess a good recommendation for everybody would be to nymph fish. That would be, I guess, a good recommendation because um, 
most of a trout or a fish's diet lives underwater. Uh, they do feed on the surface, but I'm going to say, I'm going to venture to say 70% of their food is found underneath the water. So nymphing is a very productive way of fishing and uh, it can be done in several different manners. Um, strike indicators, um, you got to have a uh, line that actually sinks in the water, uh, weight forward line, um, they, it comes in grains. So the heavier the grain, the, uh, the more the fly line will sink. And you can also use a weighted fly. So there's all kinds of different methods to nymph fish. Um, so that's what I would recommend for everybody that's uh, trying to catch fish out there um, and to be the best they can be and the most productive. So if anybody has any questions or they want to maybe learn hands-on, they can give me a call at 207 907 9151 and find me on the web at www.swimmapleoutdoors.com and I hope to see you out there fishing. Thanks a lot. Always remember to have fun. Clay, you know where to find me. This is Donna B. Hey, this is Nick from North Conway and I'm calling to give my piece of fly fishing advice. And my advice is to not go fishing with rich cods. No. Um, so my piece of advice is to go to your local fly shop and soak up as much information as you can from them because they're the ones who know your local area and can guide you in what flies to choose and what techniques to, do, to use. So... That's my piece of fly fishing advice, and I look forward to the next podcast. Thanks. Hi, Clay. This is Elaine. I'm calling actually from the middle of Oneida Lake on Walleye Wednesday um, to give you my very best fly fishing advice. My best fly fishing advice is to always wear a safety belt. I cannot tell you how important it is. My uh, first experience on the river, I almost fell victim um, in two feet of water, probably, well, three feet of water, probably. Um, I got pushed over by the current and almost, almost drowned, but thanks to my safety belt. Um, most people who drowned in rivers, um, it's not because they can't swim and it's not because they were in deep water. It's because when they went under the water, the water filled up their waders and they couldn't stand up again. So it's really terrifying. But um, so that is my best fly fishing advice. Everybody get a safety belt. Um, and I will let you know how Walleye Wednesday goes. I'm out here in the middle of Oneida Lake. So talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. This is Jeff, your effing librarian with Beast Fly Fishing Advice. The roll cast. It's your friend. I think you could do 90% of all fly fishing with the roll cast. It's easier than the overhead cast. Um, you're less likely to hang up in trees behind you. And uh, that's what I always teach people starting out. They they want to overhead cast. They saw a river runs through it. They think that's really amazing. And I said to them, forget about that. Let me show you the roll cast. And they find that 
a great entry point into fly fishing. And then later on, we can work on the overhead cast, but the roll cast can't be beat. Um, it's your it's your go-to number one way to improve your fly fishing immediately starting out. This is Jeff Giraffe and Librarian out. A sinking fly line is your friend. Hi, fish nerds. Uh, this is Ron Snow in New Hampshire, and I wanted to give you one piece of fly fishing advice. When you're fishing a river, make sure you fish before you wade. But too often I see people walking right into the river, trying to get to a spot while they're blowing fish out in the meantime, uh, and it pretty much will shut down the hole that they're fishing. So that's my one piece of advice. Well, when you're out on the water fly fishing, I recommend thinking like bait. Like thinking like I'm a vulnerable bait. Because that's what the fish looking for when you fly fishing is the vulnerable bait. So if you're a bait fish, you want to be a wounded bait fish, not with the school out there vulnerable. If you're you're, you're a bug, you're an underwater bug, you think nymphs, you know, nymphs, you're floating around, you're dislodged from a rock, you're bumming out, you're vulnerable. Yeah, you're one of them, them, them flying bugs things on top of the waters there. You want to be like on the water shaking and vulnerable. Stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, thanks sure enough for letting me share my advice here on the Fish Nerd Hotline. Yeehaw! Hi, uh, this is Liam from Backwoods Graphics. I'm calling in with a piece of fly fishing advice. Clay, to me, seems like you have the best advice and you already know it. You put your fly rod down, you pick up your spinning rod, and you catch fish. Hope you have a good afternoon. Hey, fish nerds. It's Lindsay from MainTunaFishing.com. Um, I was asked to submit a little tip for fly fishing, maybe some advice. My only advice to give is uh, don't do it. Just kidding. I love to fly fish. Fly fishing doesn't love me. I have some bad shoulders. Um, but I've, I've had really good luck with it with salmon. So, tight lines, everyone. Have a great 2017 season. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Clay, it's Rich. I know I'm supposed to teach you how to fly fish, but you're so darn busy. Um, I'm calling for my chance at that book. The one tip for you that I can give you as a fly fisherman is catching the fish is the end product of, um, fly fishing in general. The real challenge is up in your brain, up in your mind, figuring that out. And I'll keep saying that. So you're doing, you're getting to the end correctly, but it's the process of getting there that makes the true snobby fly fish. So that's my tip. Outthink the fish. Don't just trick it with a spoon. There you go. That's all. Snob away. Bye. Holy smokes, was that good advice, uh, and it took up our entire show. Uh, we'll be announcing on 
uh, on an upcoming show which one won the, uh, the John Garrett contest. Uh, but until that's it. Until next time, you've listened to a whole bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Special thanks to Andrew Lewin of Speak Up for Blue Podcast. Uh, thanks to Luke Chamings from Shamu's Lures. Thanks to all the listeners who called in with their fly fishing advice. Big thanks to Nick Hudson Swagger of Diana's Bath Salts for uh, with the audio help on this show. Uh, and until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early and often, avoid free lunches with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you get. Stay.